Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. First of all, thanks Grant and Karina and Mike. Where's Mike? There he is. For, and Theodore for looking after things while I was away. It's really nice to be home. Right now I'm, I think it's 8 o'clock in the morning. I also just want to dedicate the, the talk tonight um, to uh, Christopher Hitchens and Vaclav Havel, who both passed away this week, who, uh, especially in the last 10 years, have really been ins- really inspiring writers and thinkers. So uh, it's a lesser place without them, depending whose side you're on. <laughs> Uh, It's also so great to see so many people here on December the 20th. Um, This is the time of year where you really need your practice. You need uh, your practice when you're with your family. You need your practice when you're with your family. And you need your practice for those of you who aren't seeing family. Um, This time of year can also be the most lonely uh, time of year for people who don't have anywhere to go. Um, You really need your practice around eating this time of year. You really need your practice shopping this time of year. You have to watch your money. Uh, If you watch how you spend your money this month, you really will see your values. And so it's good to really watch that. How many things you buy wrapped in plastic, how many things you might buy that you don't need, or also where you're a little stingy. 
where maybe you aren't telling people how much you appreciate them. Or maybe you've been so caught up in how busy things are this month that you've forgotten. Because when we're busy, the first thing that disappears is appreciation. You know, we, we forget how much we're nourished by uh, others. Um, and the non-human world, too. We've been exploring for the past few months the Yoga Sutra. We sure aren't getting very far. <laughs> when I said we're going to go line by line, I didn't really mean we're going to go line by line, but we've been going line by line. And I thought I would just talk a little bit because we're in between studying some text on a, a chapter on concentration with going on the New Year's retreat, which many of us are going on uh, just in a week. Um, and so I thought I would just talk a little bit tonight about meditation practice and how it can work for you uh, over the next week until we reconvene uh, up north or some of us convene with our families or um, cats and plants and um, Murakami's new novel. <laughs> That novel made it hard to write a talk tonight. Just can't get away from it. And the fact that it's 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, yeah, it seems this time of year our lives just are so complicated. Everything's squeezed in. Um, I've been in Thailand for the past three weeks. I've been here in three weeks. And... Um, the, the first day that I was in Thailand, I went a few days before the retreat started, and so I rented a little scooter, which is my favorite thing to do in countries that have no helmets. And um, I went to visit some monasteries. And the first monastery I went to, and if you've ever been to Thailand, you know, as soon as you get off like a scooter or whatever, you're just surrounded by dogs. You know, so it's always a little bit weird the first few days getting used to that. So, of course, there were lots of dogs. And I walked around this monastery, and there was this massive tree, probably the biggest tree I've ever seen, bigger than any tree I've seen even in the redwood forest. Um, and it just towered over the whole monastery. And I had the thought that maybe one day there was some monk who sat under this tree, and 200 years ago, that tree probably looked exactly the same. And they built the monastery around this tree. And um, then uh, I walked around the monastery and everything was pretty locked up. Not too many people around, so I left. But I couldn't stop thinking about this tree. So then the next day, when I had some free time, I went and drove back to this monastery to go see this tree. And then I noticed that there was a sign that said, uh, White jade buddha so what that means is probably there's an enormous white jade buddha somewhere in this monastery so i was looking in all the windows and there were uh, a few monks that i ran into none of whom spoke any english and this is one of these temples that's not on the tourist track and um so i said you know white buddha <laughs> you know no um so 
then finally one monk explained that the room with the white Buddha only is opened up when monks ordain. So it's not open for anybody to see. And it's very beautiful, I think he said with his body language, but it's closed. So then I, I uh, kept hanging around this tree, and then the monk came over, a new, another monk came over and said, he spoke a little English, and he said, the room is closed, but if you go to the very back of the property, there's an interesting building, and it's okay to open the door. <laughs> so I walked to the back of the property with the dogs, and there was this white building that was probably, it's actually probably just the size of this room, maybe a little longer and a little bit skinnier. And um, it was really old, and it was a brick building, which is very... It was the only brick building, actually, that I saw while I was in Thailand. And um, so the door was a little bit ajar, and in the darkness through the door, I could see that everybody in the room was sitting. So there were probably this many people all sitting completely still. And so I didn't want to go in, but he said to go in. So I opened the door, and the whole room were life-size Buddhas, sculptures of Buddhas. And everyone was different, and everyone had a different face, a different jewel coming out of the top of their head. Um, does this... Oh, yeah, this one has a bit of a mango. I had this theory when I was in Thailand that that shape is because of mangoes. <laughs> and... Um, and there were probably 60 stone Buddhas that had all been carved <coughs> over centuries, all in this room in the middle of the jungle that probably no one ever goes to. And at the front, there was a very big Buddha with two standing Buddhas on either end. One looked a little bit like Kuan Yin. And then facing each other in a kind of random way, were all of these Buddhas just sitting there, maybe for a couple centuries, just sitting. And I had the thought that this was like a silence museum, that in the middle of the forest, there were all these Buddhas that were just practicing for us. And the feeling in that room was just like the feeling on a retreat after seven or eight days, where everybody's finally less self-preoccupied. Not finally. <laughs> Everybody's less self-preoccupied. And there's really a sense of gravity. And I was just so moved by the imprint of this scene. you know. So I went in and I sat, sat there with these Buddhas and, um, and mosquitoes. And uh, I, st I started going back. And, and so... Uh, a few days later, I, I, I was studying in Thailand with Richard Freeman, and I said, oh, we have, we ha you have to go see this. <laughs> and so we went there and sat together, and I told someone else, and we went and sat together. And then I had the thought that this would be so beautiful in North America. If we had, you know, we found some piece of land in the forest that maybe wasn't on a map, and we made a little trail, and we built, like, a... Um, a building that was open a bit to the elements, you know, 
so that snow could come in and rain could come in sometimes and um, wind could pass through. And every few years we sculpted a Buddha that was in the shape of somebody in this Sangha. So there would be a lame, maybe sitting like this. And then we would fill this, this in our lifetime. And then people who would come after us, who will outlive us, they would also sculpt these. And that there would be this building that's not a commercial building, and it's not exactly a temple, and it's not exactly a residence, and yet it's all, all those things. And it would be like this museum to, to silence, this thing we forget about so much. So one of the things about uh, meditation practice is it, is it connects us again with uh, this gravity um, that houses each other, but also is really our home. And I think when we're really distracted and when we're compulsive and we're busy, busy, and we have no time. Have you heard this mantra? <laughs> I'm busy. Some, something kind of like tears a little bit, I think, in us when we hear that. That I, I'm busy. Busy. And um, that we have in us also this kind of forest, this jungle, right? We chanted this earlier tonight, Jungali Kayamane. We have this jungle, and in the center of the jungle, uh, we also have this, this temple filled with these Buddhas. And our job in meditation practice is just to get each one of them to settle a little. Um, part of this involves uh, just being able to relax. I think a lot of us sometimes in the first few years of meditation practice, it's a bit uptight. Well, usually the first year is more sleeping. <laughs> and then once we learn a little technique, we don't know how to drop it. So then the technique makes us a little bit uptight. Little, not ourselves. But over time, what we learn how to do is to get the mind to relax. And then when the mind can relax, it knows how to go home. It knows how to be home. Uh, not your geographical home, or not what you superimpose in your life as your home, but this sense that I'm home. Maybe some of you have seen the calligraphy that Thich Nhat Hanh uh, has done many times, the, the Enso, and he writes inside, I'm home. Um, the problem with, with turbulence is that you forget your home and your values. And this fall, uh, really seeing uh, the Occupy movement grow and change and morph uh, underneath the, the thread of the Occupy movement has, I think, really been trying to change the discourse of our society to really open up to the first noble truth which is for people to just be home. And when we're home, then we open up to the fact that there is suffering. And so when we say coming home, 
it doesn't just mean finding peace. It also means coming home to what's actually going on. And that's why sometimes when we sit still, the first thing we experience is anxiety. Or the first thing we experience is fear or restlessness because there's some part of us that is used to not being home. And what was interesting to me about the Occupy movement was seeing that at a social level, has been seeing that at a social level, our society has forgotten about interdependence, about how we depend on each other, about how we're 100% interdependent. We inter-are. So when you sit, you wake up to interdependence in your own heart. Just like when you die. When you die, when you're dying, you're just face to face with your own heart. What you've invested in, the art that you've made, the empire you've built, the films you've made, the books you've written, the people you've loved or hated or loved to hate, um, uh, all that's not there anymore. The only thing that's there left in your heart um, when you're face to face with your heart is, is, is uh, the possibility of not clinging. Yeah? When you die and you're dying, can you really be able to find generosity and not clinging and forgiveness? Will that be possible? That's a good thing to answer every day. You know, right now, how am I holding on? Who am I holding on to? What theories of them am I holding on to? This is how the mind seems to work. Drishti, gazing, that we do when we sit in an asana practice, having the eyes half open, half closed. Um, the great non-dual philosopher Shankaracharya uh, calls drishti amanaska mudra. The mudra, the seal, or the gesture of amanaska, amanas, no mind. Being able to set up in your gaze the gesture of not creating a subject and an object. And the gaze isn't just literal, like when you see another person. It's really powerful to be able to see another person without creating a theoretical self. But it's also really powerful when you're dealing with emotions, when your family is driving you crazy, when politicians aren't doing what you voted for them to do, what you elected them for, um, that we're not creating an object out there. That we're also coming back to this place of interconnection, which is coming home again, where you're not putting them outside of your heart. Not one person outside of your heart. And that's why this path is so hard. This path is so painful because we, we get going on the path and then we start to feel the joy of the path. And I think, remember we were talking a few weeks or maybe it was a month ago about the adolescent phase of practice? No? That's convenient. <laughs> so the adolescent phase of practice was really about how there's a point in our practice where we start feeling good. 
and that it's really easy to get caught there. And that it's really important to remember that there's a point where being honest and really having the courage to look honestly at your life and to wake up to what's going on has to be more important than feeling good. Because insight into dukkha, insight into suffering, is suffering. It feels that way. But a lot of people want to have insight into suffering and feel really good at the same time. I'm in Thailand eating mangoes. There's no suffering. There wasn't any suffering. Um, And then it shows up. So how to be able to gaze, not just at the other, but even the gaze internally at what's arising uh, with no mind. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you don't have a mind, but it means you're not objectifying. You're not objectifying what you see. In Thailand, there are so many deities everywhere. Gold Buddhas everywhere. But they're not outside of the people. So one way of not objectifying something is just to turn it into a deity. So when your family arises, uh uh-huh. So you turn them into deities. And a deity is not a thing if you don't objectify it. Deity is the opposite of objectifying something, and a deity is something that you are devoted to. Shankaracharya, when he talks about Amanaska Mudra, when he talks about this gazing, he calls it Sri Amanaska Mudra. So he takes gazing and he talks about it as a deity that one is devoted to. And then he talks about Mulabandha as Sri Mulabandha. And then he talks about breathing as Sri Vayu. That whatever is showing up for us is what we're devoted to in that moment. We just turn it into a deity. It's kind of a beautiful thought. And our theme in the New Year's retreat is going to be forgiveness. Really exploring forgiveness. But actually, just doing mindfulness of breathing also is a practice of forgiveness. Especially forgiving ourselves. Oh, we're so annoying. Does anybody find themselves really annoying? Yeah. And like, how actually, just like at a base level, just to forgive that? You know? And then, as Patanjali's been saying, we get deeper and deeper where we can start to feel the breathing just as totally raw sensation. Just as constellations of sensation. Just like you're looking up at the stars. Where you don't reify what you're noticing. And you just let the constellation appear and fade away. And the path of the yogi at its deepest level is to open up to raw sensation without sticking on to those sensations, like sticky notes, uh, how they're related to you or your past or your future or what you like or what you don't like, but how to gaze and feel sensation at that level, the level of breathing, without adding anything to it. 
This is really powerful. And that's what all those Buddhas were doing, sitting in that room. I don't think they were comparing one another to one another. Um, one monk I talked to at a different monastery, I said, we were talking about concentration, and I said, how do you practice concentration? And um, he had a really good practice that I'd never heard of before, which is when you inhale, you say, boo, and when you exhale, you say, da. And it actually feels really good. So when you inhale, you just say, boo, try. And when you exhale, you just say, da, do yourself. So you're saying, Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. So simple. Sometimes I like to teach, when you inhale, just say, peace in. And when you exhale, peace out. It's a typical Vipassana. I've never liked counting. <coughs> Some people like counting. Counting drives me crazy. But I, I like just peace in, peace out. But now I'm going to try Buddha. Yeah. Really simple. Um, but all of these techniques um, are all allowing you to see thought constructions, right? The chitta vrittis, what you're superimposing on what's actually showing up. And when you turn it into a deity and you have more devotion to what's showing up, then you can relax, and then you're home, because it's not separate from you. Not separate from you. Another way to do this is labeling. You know, so if you if you have a busy mind, when thoughts come up, you can just label them: planning, family, sex, future, past, sex in the future, sex in the past, <laughs> family in the future, planning in the future, planning past, planning for sex in the future. <laughs> Anyways, there's usually like only five or six categories. And they... I'm not speaking personally. And, they, and then they get conflated with each other. In Pali, that's called papancha. Um, so the interesting thing about labeling is when something shows up, you can just label it thinking, worrying. Uh, and it's important to know in the labeling practice that... The label, does, it doesn't have to match exactly, right? Like you don't, some people who are like, if, if you're really into language, labeling's not good. <laughs> good. Labeling is a really good practice for people who are more into images. Um, just like to have broad categories like future, future, and then it allows you to come back. Past, planning, right? But you don't have to get the label per perfect. You see, if somebody's really neurotic, they, they just like, they ruin that technique really fast. Um, another technique you can use to settle is uh, in Zen practice, we have a technique where we say just this. It's also a really good practice. So you're breathing, you're settled, and then when things start to show up that start to pull you out, 
you can just say when that whatever dominant whatever's dominant shows up, just this. And that's another way of, of staying home, of being at home. Just this. Um, and then you can come back to the breath again, which is so, ah. Oh. There was a musician who studied with the Buddha named Sona, obviously. And um, he went to the Buddha because he had a really, really strong practice. And he was still not really getting insight into his life. And so he said to the Buddha, I've been practicing a really long time. And uh, even with all these years of practice, uh, I'm still really not getting insight. And the Buddha said, "Um, Sona, when you string your musical instrument, how do you string it? And Sona said, not too loose and not too tight. And the Buddha said, one of my favorite lines, that's how you should tune your life. Not too loose, not too tight. And this is really tricky in the sitting practice. Because as soon as we start reifying ourselves, or reifying what's arising, we, we, we lose intimacy with what's showing up, and we get uptight. Or... If it's threatening to the ego, we fall asleep and we get too loose. So how to find this place? Stira and sukha. Steady and sweet. And we also learn the lesson that... uh, Your life doesn't need you to think about it all the time. You don't... Nobody's asking you to interpret everything. I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, about having a practice where you try to eat breakfast without interpreting it. Has anyone tried this? Like when you eat a banana, you don't interpret it. Right? When you walk, you don't interpret it. But as soon as we start looking at thinking, we start interpreting it. So that was another lesson of the Yoga Sutra, I think, this semester, was how to enter the place where you're not interpreting, where you're not always finding meaning in everything, to allow meaning to unfold from the other side. The door opens from the other side. Um... In Thailand, um, in northern Thailand, in the forests, there was a great... It was really interesting, actually. The, the island, Koh Samui, that I was on, they only got an airport 19 years ago. And actually, uh, Thailand was covered in 85% old-growth forest until 1955. So the Thai forest tradition, the tradition of wandering monks, uh, literally was a forest tradition that really can't happen anymore because one of the reasons why they built centers or monasteries partly has to do with the fact that there aren't so many forests anymore. 
Um, so there was a great teacher who influenced Vipassana practice so much in the West named Ajahn Chah. And um, it's been really interesting reading Ajahn Chah and thinking about the landscape. Now I have a better background for Ajahn Chah. Anyways, I just wanted to read this little passage um, that I came across today. Reading his, There's an excellent book. I think it's Jack Cornfield who edited it called um, Being Dharma. Uh, if anybody's looking for reading over the holidays, Ajahn Chah's book, Being Dharma, it's a collection of his talks. It's fantastic. Anyways, this is a, a passage I came across today. If it isn't good, let it die. If it doesn't die, make it good. <laughs> I'll say it again. If it isn't good... Let it die. If it doesn't die, make it good. Isn't this what we do when we sit? Yeah? If, some, if something's painful, l- let it go. Let it go. How many of us have painful feelings that we entertain? just to torture ourselves. Have, do you, does anybody do this? Yeah? Like someone you really don't like, you go look at their Facebook page <laughs> just to feel badly, like someone who dumped you or something. What are they doing now? And, right? Just to see either how badly they're doing Or, like, how badly you're doing. We should have stayed together. So glad we didn't stay together. (laughs) Um, But also, how, how many moods we entertain that really just harm us. So, if it isn't good, let it die. Um, and if it doesn't die, make it good. So, make it good doesn't mean to take it and superimpose on what's showing up positive vibes, positive thinking. It's really painful, but it's really good for me. Um, it means coming home. How do you let something die? You give it some space. And if it doesn't die, you make it good by giving it more space. Uh, isn't all our suffering just not being able to give what we're experiencing space? Right? If there's emotions that really torture us, then those are the emotions we don't know how to, to, to offer space to. Those are the emotions we don't allow to be deities. So I, I really like this. Um, if it isn't good, let it die. If it doesn't die, make it good. Okay. So I think I'll stop here. Um, Because it's almost nine in the morning. Does anybody have anything they want to add or contribute or say?
when Richard was teaching in the afternoon, we did a lot of chanting, about an hour and a half of chanting every day. And um, then at the end of the chant, Richard would say, you can comment or ask a question as long as it was in the category of insight, foresight, hindsight. There was one more. Insight, foresight, hindsight. I don't remember. Anyways, it was interesting to think if your questions came in those categories. Christiane. No pressure. No, the pressure's on you. (laughs) Um, I was just thinking about, though, how to let it go or to... What was the other thing? To let it go or to make it good? Mm -hmm. It's like both was to give space somehow, but I also feel maybe that there's something about like holding that sweetly or and not in a way that's like this but mm-hmm. in a way that maybe honors it all yeah yeah, yeah. like I think that's so beautiful and then there's like just this really big question of like well how do we let it die and how do we make it good yeah holding it how do you hold it without squeezing it it's like holding a really ripe mango while you're driving a scooter. <laughs> but there's just something so special about holding it too, I think. Yeah. Not in that, that way that's so okay. Yeah. Yeah, how how do you so when we say let it go, it doesn't mean you're not holding it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it's not this kind of letting go. Oh <laughs> <laughs> it's like holding it like a baby. Yeah, the thing is, is that what you're holding is not an it. It's it's a sanskara. It's a conditioned form, which means it's changing. So that when you're holding it, there's the sense, and this is the, the holding, I think, that causes pain, is you're holding it and there's a sense that there's an it that you're holding that's real, and because of that, there's a theoretical constructed self that is separate from that. That's not home yet. Home is when there's holding, but it's light enough that it's together. It's really close. I kind of feel like if when it's held with love, then it, that, then it become, becomes the Buddha. Yeah. Like the little Buddha instead of it becoming something that, you know. It becomes a Buddha, but the, what's the Buddha? The Buddha's also a sanskara. It's also changing. So how do you hold, I think another way of saying it is like, how do you hold something in a way where you're not um, um, clinging to it? And you're also not holding it as an idea over here. I read a note in my um, fundamental point the other day, and I think you must have said it, and it said, how can you love the blossom with your whole being knowing that it's going to fall? Did I say that? Maybe. That's really good. <laughs> you can quote that anytime. <laughs> That's the fundamental point. Yeah. yeah, Enkyo Roshi always says, you know, to really look at trees in the fall and learn how they let go of their leaves. That's really beautiful, huh? It's the same as what Ajahn Chah is saying. Like, 
how to let go like a tree can let go of its leaves. Or for those of you who um, have ever, you know, hung out under cherry blossoms, that's why cherry blossoms are so tragic, right? They're so beautiful and it's so short. So how do you hold something like the beauty of a cherry blossom and watch how the tree holds it and then lets it go? The way you do it, I think, is you drink a lot of sake. (laughs) Don't quote me on that. (laughs) Somebody else? Yeah. I think following up after these amazing words, it's just torture. But um, I'm kind of wondering how to use the tools that you just talked about now and to shut off the incessant um, iPod jukebox that's playing in my head. Mm. Do you mean literally the iPod jukebox, or do you is that a metaphor? Um, no, it's, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's actually really funny you say that because I, I was thinking about this recently. But when I first started practicing, I I was really in, into retreats, and so when I would go on retreats. All I would have would be lyrics for songs. So the teacher would, even during Dharma talks, the teacher would say something and it would be a phrase and be like, oh, that's from this Beatles song and this is from that Dylan song. And, and I just noticed how much music I listen to and how much that then actually creates a pattern through which I see my life. And actually, this is an interesting thing about cultural forms and meditation practice, because some cultural forms can actually raise awareness, and some cultural forms actually shut it down. And it's actually really interesting just to watch that, where certain um, part aspects of our culture actually help us become more awake, and then there are certain kind of plastic forms of the culture or of art that actually we think are waking us up, but are really actually creating more filters. And so I think it's really good if you have an iPod to give it a break sometimes for a month. To not always have a soundtrack for your life. It's funny you said that because um, I've actually given it a break for a long time for that exact reason. Yeah. I've been traveling around before I came to Toronto. Yeah. I noticed that generally people are kind of plugged into something when they're traveling. Yeah. Like whether it's a game or phone or texting or yeah. listening to music. So yeah. and I realized that most of the interactions I was having, I was bumping into people. And it was because it was spontaneous and they were listening yeah. to a while playing a game or something. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna continue it and not be plugged in. Yeah. Um so I've only kind of started picking up recently to kind of take myself into a different vibe, into a different mood. So it's yeah. kind of funny that I've now started meditation and had this problem. Sure. So. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think the only thing I would watch for is if you start to have this idea that that whole soundtrack is going to stop. Um, it's interesting, Dogen... Was it Dogen or Bodhidharma? In the precepts course, we've been studying not stealing. 
and I can't remember if it's Dogen or Bodhidharma, their definition of the precept of not stealing was practicing with no gaining idea. How to practice without an idea of gaining. And I actually think that hidden in a lot of our meditation practice is the intention to gain something. And it can be as simple as um, trying to gain absolute peace. (laughs) Trying to let go. Trying to relax. Trying to empty the mind. And you really have to watch that. Because that's just another aspect of wanting. It's another aspect of craving that we have. So you, you notice that and you have to let that go too. Sorry. You can't like pre-plan letting go. I'm just going to pre-plan. This week I'm going to let go of this, this, and this. It's like pre-planning your thoughts. Imagine if you could pre-plan your thoughts for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> this is what I'm going to think. It's actually interesting to think about like when in your life did you first think about the past? Or like do you remember when you were young when you first really started thinking about the future? Maybe this would be something really to contemplate. Like, what happened that made you start really thinking about the past or the future? You know? And then to see that, that that's actually a moment of, 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 of um, not being at home. So this is what we're doing. Coming home in our practice. So uh, I think we should maybe uh, chant now. So Rose, do you want to? So uh, why don't, did you stand up last week? Okay. So let's stand. with infinite compassion illuminate this endless field. May Mary Clennant, Anne Hutchinson, Teresa Hibbert, Andrea Kirsch, Scott Beveridge, John Panagapka, Naomi Halliday, John Calderhead, Tracy Carroll, Saga Hanga, Phil Holboom, 
Find healing and peace at this time of illness. For our great abiding friends and Dharma brothers and sisters, James Hillman, Jenna Morrison, Anthony Cooper, Rita Anderson, Chris Lajos, Jack Layton, Lynn St. John, Brad Dixon, Scott Walker, Brent Carroll, Sophia Borella, Vaclav Havel, Christopher Hitchens, who are passing from this world. They have taken a great leap. The light of this world has faded for them. They have gone into a vast silence. They are borne away by the great ocean of birth and death. May they, together with all beings, realize the end of suffering and the complete unfolding of their Death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. All beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. Happy holidays. Thank you for another great semester. Um, this fall has really been like such a new time moving to this space. And so many people in this room have done so much work uh, behind the scenes, in front of the scenes to make that happen. So uh, thank you so much for everybody who's contributed so much to make this community work and shift and be what it is. <laughs>